Welcome to the Enterprise Excellence Podcast, where our purpose is to help create a better future. Learn from our world's experts how to improve your organisation sustainably. Learn how to achieve and sustain an excellence journey for yourself, others and the planet. I'm your host, Brad Jennings, coming to you from Brisbane, Australia. Welcome to episode 20 of the Enterprise Excellence Podcast. I'm so pleased to have Mr. Mark Graben joining us for this episode. Mark is focused on helping others learn how to improve to sustain performance. He's the author of Lean Hospitals, Healthcare Kaizen, and most recently, Measures of Success, all award-winning books. Mark is a host of a number of podcasts, including Lean Blog Interviews and My Favorite Mistake Podcast. Mark is truly a person who has dedicated his career to creating a better future. Let's get into the episode. Mark, welcome. I really appreciate your time and getting to talk to you today. Well, thank you, Brad. And, um, and, and yeah, I, I should point out Measures of Success um, has not won any awards unless you're bestowing one on me today. <laughs> it's so, to come. If, it's to come. Yeah, maybe, but thank you. Um, yeah, I hope, that, I hope people like that other book anyway. <laughs> nice. Mark, what, what's your backstory? Like, what got you into this area of continuous improvement, healthcare, podcasting? Well, so, I mean, you know, continuous improvement came first. Um, my story is, uh, you know, a fairly common story. I was an industrial engineering student as an undergraduate. So I was very interested in manufacturing and operations. And, of course, I was exposed to the Toyota production system. And, and it was really, I mean, I think it was, it was a correct view of a portion of TPS. You know, our professor was teaching about, um, you know, uh, reduced batching, single piece flow, um, really the, the material flow and material handling aspects of lean. And then um, coming out of college, I started my career at General Motors and I didn't take that job in 1995 because they were lean. Um, but there was this opportunity um, to work in my hometown. And so that my two years at General Motors really solidified my passion around continuous improvement because in that first year, it was decidedly not a lean culture. The leaders were very traditional General Motors leaders. Our productivity was terrible. Our quality was terrible. Morale was terrible. But then after about a year, um, we got a new plant manager who was one of the original GM people who learned from Toyota at Numi in California. Well, what a breath of fresh air he was. You know, this, I saw firsthand that a different leadership style and working to change the culture and engage people differently meant more than the technical methods of lean, which we used. But, you know, he, he was a very inspirational leader. Um, I had a chance, even though we were making really good progress there and it was starting to become fun, um, I had a chance to go to graduate school at MIT where we studied lean formally. Um, but, you know, th that passion really took root as I moved on through different uh, manufacturing companies. And then I had the opportunity to work in healthcare in 2005 um, as, as a consultant um, to different organizations. I learned a lot of the challenges we faced in General Motors 1995. We're still there in healthcare 2005. Um, sadly, many of those challenges and opportunities are are still there today. So I've, I've now focused on healthcare longer 
then uh, you know I was able to spend in manufacturing. Um, I started uh, podcasting. You know, when you asked about that, um, back in 2006, I'd been blogging a little bit, um, and uh, I'll give credit to Norman Bodak if if listeners know Norman. He's quite legendary in in the lean movement. Um, Norman suggested because we had been talking, and he said, you know, you should do a radio show, and I translated that to mean podcast. And so, almost 400 episodes later, in the Lean Blog Interview series, um, I still still love doing the podcasting. Um, I still love trying to help, um, you know, educate and inspire related to continuous improvement. It's a real, real credit to yourself, Mark, especially spreading the word and getting the knowledge out there like in that regard. Mark, what, what, what led you into healthcare? Like what made you choose to spend so much time in healthcare with continuous improvement and lean? Yeah. So, I mean, there's a couple elements of that. One, um, when I was working for my last manufacturing company in Phoenix, Arizona, we had this local network of, of lean focused people and continuous improvement people at different companies in the area, manufacturing companies. Nobody was in the same market. Nobody was competing with each other. And so we would get together once a quarter and go to somebody's factory and walk and talk and compare notes and then one of those quarterly visits, there were two women uh, who left Motorola and were doing work, I think, as consultants to a hospital in Scottsdale, just outside of Phoenix. So that, that was probably going back late 2004. That was my eye opener. I would have never imagined that there were so many opportunities uh, in healthcare to improve quality, to improve patient flow, to create better workplaces. And so that opened my eyes. Um, and, and, you know, I started reading a little bit about lean in healthcare just out of curiosity. Um, you know, I'm fortunate, uh, you know, I haven't spend, spent much time in hospitals. I've, I've been pretty healthy in my lifetime. Um, but it was eye-opening to, to see, you know, what, what was being described as the opportunity in healthcare. So as things happen sometimes, um, I'll, I'll admit to um, having opportunities, you know, uh, present themselves. You could call that luck. You could call it good fortune or good timing. Um, in 2005, my wife was changing companies, which meant moving to Texas, which meant I was also on the job market. And I got a call from a recruiter at Johnson and Johnson who was hiring for a consulting group that worked with medical laboratories and hospitals. And I tell you, if not for my wife's career move and our relocation, you know, I'd only been at my previous company for a year. I didn't love it there, but I wasn't quite ready to move on necessarily. I might have said um, no thank you to that opportunity. So, um, you know, things worked out well. I thought this could be a temporary detour into healthcare. At the least, I'll learn a lot and maybe go back to my manufacturing career path. But as it turned out, um, you know, healthcare has really been my main focus um, for 15 years. I, I still enjoy when I get the opportunity to work with companies outside of healthcare, um, just for that variety and trying to help people in, in different settings. It's certainly got a good purpose to it, doesn't it, But Like any improvement you make in healthcare, boy, there is dramatic outcomes. Like you, you're talking in the most wonderful case, saving a life that mightn't have been saved. But yes. uh, you mentioned some challenges or you hinted at some challenges yeah. within healthcare that you've also seen in General Motors. What are those main barriers or challenges that you think healthcare face that stop them from achieving, you know, a dramatic culture of continuous improvement and lean excellence? Yeah. So maybe, you know, I'll touch first on some of the challenges and then um, barriers. 
you know, the challenges, I mean, you know, back when I was in manufacturing, we learned this mantra of um, SQDC, safety, quality, delivery, cost. There are huge opportunities, sadly, in all four areas uh, within healthcare. Uh, patient safety is a huge problem around the world. And it's a problem a lot of people, frankly, aren't aware of in the general public. Um, quality is related, you know, the quality of care, um, errors and, and miscommunications and delays that, that occur. Um, you know, when we talk about delivery in healthcare, we often talk about access. You know, how long are people waiting uh, for care, waiting for an appointment or waiting in the waiting room once they actually arrive on site. And then, you know, you look at costs, you know, I, I'm, I'm in the United States, of course, which is notorious around the world for having the most expensive um, health system. And we don't get um, great results for that spending. But I don't think I, you know, my travels around the world, I, I can't think of a country where I visited where people aren't concerned about how expensive healthcare is and how much the cost is increasing, like at a national um, level. So there are those opportunities. And, and then, you know, the, the morale perspective, you know, I hate when I see environments where, where people um, are burned out, they're not feeling um, like they're treated well, they're not being engaged, you know, so these issues all are interrelated. So I think one of the barriers is the old habits of um, what, what many would call command and control leadership styles. Um, blaming individuals for systemic problems, which then drives the hiding and cover-up of problems. Um, there's, there's a lot of that in healthcare. And so, again, like, I think the impact of senior leadership and, and, and the culture, we, we, we get the most um, impact when we think of lean as you know, a management system and a culture and a philosophy that, yes, tools and projects uh, matter, um, but, you know, out of context of a, a lean culture, we don't really reach the full potential that we could with lean otherwise. It's so universal, isn't it? Like you mentioned that story about General Motors when we first started the interview. And then really you find it, you found the same thing in healthcare. Mark, have you got an example or a, some insights you can share into how you've gone about helping healthcare industry shift or leadership in healthcare shift? And or examples that you've seen where it has created better outcomes. Yeah, um, you know that it's 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 difficult because that invitation has to be there, right? So when I've worked with organizations, sometimes the invitation is a matter of coming in and solving some sort of specific problem. Let's reduce delays in the hospital laboratory. You know, um, and and those are worthy worthy goals. Um, in more recent years, I've had opportunities where that invitation includes, um, you know, help us with the way we're managing on a daily basis. Help us with some of our cycles of annual strategic planning or strategy deployment. Um, help us, help us change the uh, the culture. Um, and 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 so that that that's. Easier said than done, right? So leaders, you know, I saw in General Motors and, and leaders in healthcare often have years, if not decades, of accumulated habits in terms of behavior. Uh, beliefs don't change quickly. You know, if there's a leader who thinks, 
you know, my, you know, in their, in their core, you know, oh, my employees don't have any ideas worth bringing out. They need to just show up to work and do what they're told and do their jobs. If somebody believes that deeply and has somehow had that reinforced over time, I don't know if that changes, but you know, there, there are moments when you know, I think leaders are awakened. Sometimes it's by peers, you know, they, they see leaders at other organizations who have changed their leadership style and they've changed the culture in the organization and they've, they've seen great results follow. Um, you know, it's this combination of like both the rational argument, look at the numbers, look at the results, look at the data. And then there's the more emotional reasons where, you know, leaders might, leaders might feel burned out or they might say, you know, we're working so hard and we're not really moving the needle on any of our metrics. There's got to be a better way. And then, you know, hopefully we, we get agreement on, you know, what the better way is and what the countermeasures might be. Um, but, but sometimes, you know, it, it's difficult trying to get people to admit that there's a problem or a gap in performance or that that gap is closable. Um, so people might say, well, you know, this is just the way healthcare is. These problems aren't solvable. Uh, it's sad, but patients, you know, they'll, they'll say it's just bound to happen that patients are going to get infection, infections in the hospital, um, except we can point to a lot of cases where uh, infections have been almost completely eliminated. So, um, you know, sometimes leaders, there's a chance moment where um, somebody on their board or somebody in their community helps open their eyes to a different leadership style and a, um, you know, a different way of um, uh, delivering healthcare. Well, Mark, so it really sounds to me like it's trying to create or have a leader have a moment of insight and discovery that they really embrace and take hold of themselves. Like that is required to truly mm -hmm. start to shift behavior. That's, that's a good way of saying it. So how do we create, yeah, how do we create those moments where somebody discovers that there's a better way as opposed to just hearing about a better way? I mean, it's human nature, I think, when um, you know, somebody's trying to tell us we should change, we naturally push back a little bit and say, well, we don't have to. I don't have to change. The problem is somewhere else. You know, you mentioned uh, my most recent book, Measures of Success. We look at some of the methods that I teach there related to performance metrics. When I have the opportunity to teach workshops, and I'm, I'm trying to figure out how this evolves now <laughs> in a virtual era, um, Using experiential learning um, like the Red Bead game that was made famous by W. Edwards Deming. There's no substitute for, you know, simulations or experiences and safe environments where people can start to reflect on um, their management practices and, you know, have, the, have those management practices really been effective or not. And then that might open people's thinking to explore, um, you know, the idea of trying a different approach. Well, so maybe I do know of that red bead game that that was famous from Deming. Yeah, it's so one really, thing to read about it, but it's more impactful to actually participate, right? Yeah, I'd love to one day. That'd be amazing. So, Mark, what you're saying is potentially by people getting involved in a simulated external event in a safe environment, and they're experiencing the same outcomes that we're talking about. Where, I guess, from the red bead game it's really getting across that point that the person is not necessarily the problem. There's deeper things to it than the person and to look more broadly at the system and the culture. That's really powerful. So you're doing a lot of thought right now on, okay, these 
events that I can run and these simulations I can develop to help leaders have those aha moments. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's a simulation or variations of a simulation I've used to help demonstrate the Kaizen approach to continuous improvement. Um, either making, um, you know, uh, ice cream sundaes, which is fun in a conference setting sometimes, and doing that in a very uh, batchy way as opposed to setting up single piece flow, um, or even sometimes just um, putting together envelopes and mailers, you know, just to have some process that people can practice um, Kaizen principles on. Um, I've, I've been working um, with one client of mine where we're, we're trying to figure out how to do a similar simulation in a virtual space using a tool like Miro. Um, virtual ice cream sundaes may just make people hungry. <laughs> but, you know, maybe people can play that simulation online and then go find a way to get ice cream in a, a socially distant, safe way. So trying to experiment, and a lot of my colleagues and friends are, you know, comparing notes on um, how do we get some of those learnings across um, in, in a virtual way instead of being together in person. Yeah, it's great. Mark, for a leader who's in a hospital listening to this podcast, what advice would you give them as a starting point if they are wanting to shift change and get better results? So, I mean, that's, that's a great question. A couple of things come to mind. You know, one is I think the importance of leading by example in the learning and in the practice of new behaviors. Um, you know, I, I, I believe very strongly that um, executives can't delegate culture change, that people tend to follow and model the behaviors they see from their leaders. So, um, you know, that includes, um, you know, admitting and acknowledging what we don't know and that we should always be learners um, to, to, you know, learn how to get better at solving problems in an experimental way, right? So instead of just preaching, you know, what many would call PDCA or I, I prefer the language of plan, do, study, adjust or PDSA as a lot of people would say in healthcare, you, you've got to model that behavior um, firsthand. Um, you know, so I think, you know, the leader can try to help influence the culture, but then I think it's, there are also a lot of important lessons about um, not spreading your efforts too thin or too broadly. Are we really going to transform an entire organization in a short period of time? Probably not. But, you know, I think there's a lot to be said and I've seen in my own experience and from others of starting somewhere you know, going deeply within uh, a value stream, if you will. Um, you know, you might, you might start a little bit smaller within a department, but I think in healthcare, you quickly learn many problems are systemic and interconnected and no one department alone can solve things. So you start identifying those value stream opportunities and start building collaboration across departmental lines. You know, is it, I think an important first step. And, you know, I think when you start small with leadership um, support around behaviors and culture change, you can demonstrate the impact of lean. So instead of talking about it in theory, when you start somewhere and demonstrate, here's the impact that lean has had on safety, quality, delivery, cost, and morale, then that creates pull um, to, to spread more of that through the, through the organization. So sometimes executives push 
you might say, but maybe more accurately, they go out and, and work with leaders who report to them and, and create pull and enthusiasm uh, for lean and for everything that comes with it. So I think, again, summarize, you know, um, leaders have to model um, certain behaviors from the top change starts with them, but at the same time, you know, maybe start small and don't have everybody, for example, implementing some of the mechanisms of uh, lean management systems. You know, I think the one thing I've seen uh, not work well or even fail is, you know, I go visit an organization and they say, well, we told everybody three months ago to put up these huddle boards and they're identical and everybody has to do huddles and do continuous improvement. And then you walk through the, the hospital and you see most of these boards are empty or unused. So you can step back and, and, and people might say, unfortunately, uh, we tried lean and it failed. I think it's more accurate to say maybe the approach we took uh, to practicing lean had some struggles and let's learn from that and, and keep moving instead of giving up. Yeah. That constant learning is a, a really important point that you make. I had Jeff Liker on the show earlier on and he mm-hmm. really highlighted that talking about the Toyota Carter a fair bit. Yeah. Uh, yeah and that, that helps build some of those, the, the those habits of, um, you know, I think trying to shift, and this is where culture change is hard. A lot of times executives have been promoted based on what they know with certainty and to try to shift from knowing things to figuring things out, um, you know, requires um, some vulnerability and, you know, creates the risk that in the course of figuring things out, um, we learn we believe something to be true and it's not really true. And those are some of those behaviors and habits that I think really have to be demonstrated by executives. Mark, you, you mentioned then about, you know, leaders are often put into the position because they're the expert and then they can believe, look, my job is to be the expert and tell everyone what to do. Mm-hmm. And that can, I understand that can become a risk when it comes to rolling out lean or something because they want to push it more on the organization. You mentioned earlier in the conversation, a leader needs to create pull for continuation. You know, continuous improvement where people are pulling the direction into play and pulling the journey to make it happen. Do you mind explaining that this pull based journey versus push based? Yeah. I mean, I think it, you know, it comes down to leadership styles of, um, you know, uh, influence instead of authority. I mean, I think back to somebody I really admire. He's a, an American who's a retired Toyota executive who, like me, he started his career in traditional Detroit automakers. I think he, Gary Convis, I think he worked for both Ford and General Motors. Um, but then he came into Toyota and, you know, learned these different behaviors. And one of the things he, te- you know, he would teach is um, lead as if you have no authority, which I think, you know, that, that's a slower approach, but I think it's more effective, right? So again, a CEO can send out a memo issue a mandate that says, all right, in two weeks, you're all going to put up these boards on your wall and you're going to start doing daily huddles. And then staff come to these huddles and, and they might ask, why are we doing these huddles? And the leader says, oh, because the CEO told us to. That's the wrong answer. Or there are a hundred answers that are better than the CEO told us to. So, I mean, I think, you know, we go from, you know, leader as boss to, you know, a leader as a teacher, a leader who, you know, challenges others or tries to inspire people, right? So I think one other, you know, he's a legend, um, you know, really uh, admire and appreciate 
um, what I've tried to learn from him, uh, Paul O'Neill, who passed away earlier this year. You know, he was CEO of Alcoa. He got very involved in healthcare, um, you know, trying to help influence organizations and leaders. And, you know, Paul O'Neill, um, when you're talking about, you know, sort of trying to create pull, um, that's an active pursuit. So I think, you know, there, there's a time and a place for a leader, as Paul O'Neill did, to set very inspiring aspirational goals, like zero harm. That doesn't mean he had all the answers about how to achieve zero harm. And he wasn't going to blame or punish people anytime harm was reported. What he would probably get more upset about is when, uh, if, if, if harm occurred and it was just uh, excuses were made and it wasn't taken as a learning opportunity to then prevent that harm from ever occurring anywhere again. So you know, I think leaders need to um, not, not just set demanding goals, but support their leaders and, and coach them. So again, it shifts from you know, leader as um, all-knowing person with all the answers who can't ever be incorrect um, to a leader who is you know, inspirational and supportive, saying, you know, we'll figure this out together. And, um, you know, I think that like, that's a message, I think, very compelling in healthcare. Instead of saying, um, let's reduce patient harm by 2% next year. That's not very inspiring. Um, but, but trying to say, okay, we are really aiming for zero harm. We know we won't get there overnight. Um, but we all need to rally around that, that correct goal for the correct reasons and work together to try to get there. So, uh, so here, help me. Uh, did, did, how, did I answer the question or did I just talk a bunch? <laughs> no, it was brilliant. It was brilliant. And Mark, I really get from that last statement, what you're saying is more talk to the heart more and talk as we're a team on that journey. Right. Yeah, and I think, you know, and, and some of my Toyota mentors have emphasized, um, again, like the head and the heart. Um, you know, look at, look at people. I mean, you know, even, even engineers who are very analytical, we're all emotional um, at our core. I think this is, you know, part of human nature. And, and we shouldn't deny that emotion, whether that's, you know, frustration, um, you know, I think, you know, lean leaders don't tell people, um, you know, just, uh, you shouldn't be frustrated or, you know, you can't just tell people don't get burned out. Well, we've, we've got to try to prevent that frustration and we've got to prevent that burnout, um, and, and try to help people recover from that in a, a collaborative way. It's amazing how much research is coming out at the moment on this topic too, Mark, isn't it? Like I, I love Brene Brown and people like that who are bringing more insight into the need for vulnerability, the need for showing empathy. Well, I guess empathy goes right back to Covey and way back. Yes, and Covey and understanding others. And I think working in healthcare, it's hard to say how much of this is working in healthcare and maybe this is some of me maturing um, as, as, as a person. Um, but having a better appreciation for, um, yeah, the, 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 the emotion and, um, empathy and feelings, and we shouldn't deny uh, people's feelings um, in a workplace. Um, and, and, you know, we, we, so we need to you know, respect what people are saying and not deny whether they're complaining about um, a safety risk or whether they're complaining about discrimination that they might be facing in their organization. Instead of denying that or telling people, don't get upset, we, we've got to get to the core of the issue. And, um, you know, and, um, 
you know, and, and, and there are positive sides of where we can tap into emotion of um, the good feelings that come from um, people participating in continuous improvement and reinforcing through, um, you know, celebrations and positive feedback and, um, you know, kind of building, you know, positive momentum instead of, you know, I think of that cycle I experienced at General Motors where people hated coming to work, then they experienced bad, more, they experienced bad things, which only made them hate coming to work even more. Um, we can, we can reduce, we can, we can flip those cycles. Yeah. Flip it from the negative to the positive energy. Yeah. 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 Right. What's some of the results you've seen with a division in a healthcare organization or a whole healthcare organization really shifting their leadership approach and then deploying lean, you know, in a targeted way and getting that continuous improvement momentum. So, um, Gosh, I'm trying to think, you know, which, which examples, um, which examples to talk about. Um, you know, there are examples and, you know, there are places I've worked and then there are places where your listeners may, um, you know, have read, um, you know, I think if, you know, somebody who comes to mind, um, who I've had a chance to meet and seen him operate a little bit within a health system, but, um, uh, Dr. Rick Shannon, um, comes to mind and, and he was influenced very directly and very personally by Paul O'Neill. Um, because they were both in Pittsburgh. And, you know, I think Rick Shannon, um, you know, has, has this leadership style and approach um, where you, you, you know, you really set aspirational goals, right? So Rick Shannon um, would work with people. And a lot of times, again, people say, well, these things are bound, bound to happen. We've always had, um, for example, you know, central line um, infections, or, you know, they're called central line associated bloodstream infections or CLABSIs say, well, these are bound to happen or people make excuses and say, well, you know, our patients are really sick and what can we do? Well, that's the question. What can we do? We haven't figured it out yet. So studying the work, looking at, um, you know, deviation from standard and asking why, why, you know, and, and not blaming individuals, but looking for systemic barriers to not having the right supplies or not having enough time to do the right things the right way. And then sometimes changing the standard work based on changing medical evidence or what a team can prove out locally. Um, you know, you can see pretty quick um, reductions of certain types of infections by, you know, 90 or 95%. Um, and so it's not, you know, a 2% improvement. Um, I've worked with, there was one hospital I worked with where we analyzed as a team looking at nursing activities in, in a patient um, a patient ward or unit. And basically if you, if you added up all the things the nurses were asked to do every hour, it was about 80 minutes worth of work. It's impossible. And so this is where the opportunity for lean is um, identifying waste. You can't just, you, you don't want to cut out value added activity. You want to eliminate the waste that interferes with the timely delivery of value. Um, and the errors that occur when people are rushed and under pressure. So, um, you know, in that setting through, you know, really looking at the organization of supplies and equipment, um, it's not brain surgery, it's not rocket science. It's just kind of good, solid process design of observing the work, identifying barriers to doing the right work the right way, um, making some improvements and, you know, in a really short period of time, um, there were reductions in um, patient falls. 
and pressure ulcers. I think it was on the order of like 75 or 80 percent um, very, very quickly. And wow. it just kind of goes to show kind of like with the red bead game. When you change the system, you can change performance. Don't ask people to try harder and be more careful within their existing system. We have to work together um, to change the system. So, you know, things like that are really powerful. And when things like that get published in um, case studies or better yet journal articles that are peer reviewed and validated, you can step back and say, well, then, you know, why, why do these practices not spread everywhere more quickly? There's, there's a lot of interesting medical history, just kind of a last, last note on this. Um, when um, antiseptic practices were first discovered and when germ theory was not well understood or well accepted, um, the idea of hand washing and, and, and proper hygiene before surgery, that idea spread very slowly around the world. At the same time, there was another medical clinical invention called anesthesia. That spread in the late 19th century without modern communication technology. That idea spread very quickly around the world. And it said, well, anesthesia had benefit to the patient and to the surgeon because it's much easier to operate on a patient who's unconscious and not feeling pain than it would be to hold a patient down, right? But antisepsis didn't have such a clear immediate benefit um, to, to the physicians. And, and you know, again, I don't, I don't blame uh, physicians for that, but I think it comes back to the idea of we've got to tap into, um, you know, the, the benefits to people. Don't just tell them, you need to go do these lean things. We need to emphasize the reasons why. The benefits to the patients, the patients to themselves as caregivers, um, the, patient, the, uh, the benefits to the organization. Yeah, wow. So it's really finding that, getting them involved and also understanding that what's in it for them and helping them discover that rather than being forced on them. Right. And I, and I would start that conversation, and this is where I think classic lean problem-solving um, comes to mind. Let's not go throw a solution or a countermeasure at people. Let's not start the conversation there. Let's start the conversation talking about the current condition, the performance gap between where we are and the ideal condition. Let's talk about why those, uh, why that level of performance or lack thereof is important. And then let's understand the current state and the causes, right? So we, we build support along the way. Like when I hear people talking about, um, we need to gain buy-in to our solution. I'm like that, that's, that's way too late to start getting buy-in. You've really got to help work people through the entire problem solving process. Mark, does this come back to the discussion earlier today that we've had around working pilot area to pilot area or zone to zone so that yeah. no one's ever getting anything pushed on them they're getting engaged in developing their own approach each time. Yeah. So I think that's where, you know, leaders, um, you know, this is where strategy deployment is helpful and focusing an organization around the most meaningful measures and the most meaningful gaps in performance. Um, we might use that to help select um, a pilot area. You know, there's one school of thought that says, you know, you should go solve the most meaningful uh, problems first. There are some who say, well, let's start with something a little bit easier. You know, let's take, let's walk before we run. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think when leaders, I think here's, here's the difference um, where, you know, in the, in the past targets might've been set to judge and evaluate people. 
we have red, yellow, green, and, and, you know, at the end of the year, there's an evaluation and a financial impact. Well, I think instead, I think setting targets and then identifying that gap should create, um, you know, action and problem solving and collaboration. So if we set a goal, we don't just circle back at the end of the year and just sort of judge performance. Um, leader, you know, Dr. Deming always said, the role of a leader is not to judge perform. I'm paraphrasing, is not to judge performance, it's to help elevate performance. And so I think, you know, setting goals and um, doing so in a way where we're not blaming staff, we're not blaming leaders, we're, we're looking at systems and um, kind of understanding together and improving together, I think is the key. Yeah, it's really neat. It's really neat. Yeah. Mark, through your podcast and your books and your career, you've inspired so many people. Who are some people that inspired you along the way and why? Oh, well, I've already, you know, I've already touched on some of them. Um, you know, Dr. Deming through his books and his videos, you know, I never had the chance to meet Dr. Deming uh, directly. Um, I've, through my podcast, I've had the opportunity to interview many people who did know him and work with him directly, which I've, I've found to be uh, a great opportunity to learn and continue to be inspired. Um, my plant manager at General Motors, Larry Spiegel, uh, was, was a great example and a great um, inspirational um, leader. Um, Paul O'Neill, again, comes to mind for his track record at, at Alcoa of emphasizing um, employee safety as a non-negotiable priority for the organization, or it's really a precondition for any other work. Um, he's really inspiring. Um, you know, I think others I've run across in healthcare who have helped drive culture change in their organization as CEOs. Um, John Toussaint, um, Gary Kaplan from uh, Virginia Mason Medical Center, um, Eric Dixon, who's um, CEO at a, a health system called UMass Memorial Health in Massachusetts. Um, Eric has done so much to build a culture of continuous improvement. And during the pandemic, he very publicly said, um, even though they had, uh, in, our, in our American system, uh, a 40% reduction in revenue. Many healthcare organizations would say, well, ah, therefore we have no choice but to furlough or lay off people. It is a choice. And, and, and Eric Dixon, um, to his credit, and I really admire, convinced his board that the right long-term decision was no furloughs, no layoffs, to invest in training, um, have people building PPE that was necessary, um, working on quality and process improvement efforts. And, um, you know, I've talked to people at other organizations who said that their organizations are coming out of the pandemic stronger than they had beforehand. And, and some of the other people I've learned from, uh, Pascal Dennis and others who are former Toyota people from um, uh, Canada, you know, would emphasize, you can't cut your way to greatness. And yeah. you know, I, I, lessons like that are invaluable. And, you know, those, those are some of the people, gosh, I hate to think who I've left off that list. But those, are, those are some of the first people who come to mind who um, I've really learned a lot from and I really admire. Um, again, Norman Bodak, who inspired um, doing that first podcast. I've learned so much from Norman about Kaizen. Um, I really owe him a lot as well. Yeah, it's amazing. And I guess over 400 episodes in your podcast, there would be yeah, some amazing people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, wow. 
right, what's, what's the focus now for you for the future? What are you focused on now? Well, so during the pandemic, I've been, um, you know, doing what I can to support organizations remotely. You know, I, I work independently with some clients and then there are times um, I work as a subcontractor uh, partner with a firm called Value Capture, which was founded by um, Paul O'Neill and others. Um, because there's a very strong alignment there around this passion around safety and leadership and um, what Paul O'Neill called habitual excellence, you know, building those habits in an organization. I have ramped up, um, you know, some of the work that I do in different ways with a software company called Kinexus, um, which is a, a web-based platform for managing improvement work and documenting that um, and tabulating that within an organization. So I do um, webinars and, and different kinds of marketing work uh, with them. And then uh, I've also launched a new podcast series um, um, on episode five as we, uh, as we sit and do this recording. Um, it's called My Favorite Mistake. And it's a podcast. It's not focused on lean per se, but the theme is learning from mistakes and how that influence us as individuals and organizations. So um, that kind of opens up opportunities to interview a broader range of people. Um, I got to interview um, a U.S. congressman, uh, a former Air Force fighter pilot and uh, you know, commercial pilot then afterwards. Um, I've gotten to interview uh, a master distiller from a whiskey producer in Texas and a whole range of different people from different walks of life, all on that theme of what's, you know, what's their favorite mistake. So um, yeah, I'm not traveling as much and um, you know, my business has been uh, impacted, um, you know, unfortunately from the pandemic and, and financial circumstances here, but um, you know, I'm keeping busy trying to help make a difference in different ways. Yeah, you really are. I love that um, aspect of learning from mistakes and doing it with a positive because you definitely do learn from mistakes. Like I reflect on my life. I think I've learned more from some of my mistakes than I've learned from anything else. Yeah. And sometimes it takes years to really fully recognize <laughs> that something we viewed as a mistake either wasn't a mistake or um, if we've learned from it, you know, it turned out to be uh, beneficial. And, and that's the key, right? Whether it's lean problem solving or, you know, on these themes of my favorite mistake, not repeating the same mistakes over and over again. Because we're all human, we all make mistakes. We make a decision that at the time we think is a good decision. Maybe we click, quickly learned uh, it was not a good decision and then we can learn to see, you know, what are our blind spots or what were some of the um, um, things that we could do um, to make better decisions or, um, you know, not put ourselves in circumstances where mistakes happen. Yeah, do true, do true. Mark, how can people reach out to you and get in touch with you on any of these podcasts or the consulting work and support work you do? Yeah, so um, my website where people can find links to all of this is uh, markgraben.com. Um, I can be found pretty easily on LinkedIn, which is, you know, I think the main uh, professional social network uh, that matters these days. And uh, my, my blog um, is leanblog.org. But again, I would suggest if people go to markgraben.com, um, you'll find links and ways to kind of explore the different things I do. Yeah, that's great. One final question, Mark. What, sure. what have you learned recently that you didn't know before? What's been a recent insight for you? Um, so you know, you're talking about making mistakes. A recent insight, and I knew this, 
but it's continually, it's being reinforced and I'm less likely to make this mistake in the future. Um, so when we talk about the power of, of uh, let's say checklists or standard work, you can document what your process is and you can run that process successfully many, 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 many times. And then it's when you stop using the checklist because you think you know how to do something error free is when the mistakes and the oversights um, start creeping in. So, you know, thankfully the mistakes I make are not life and death. Um, you know, I, I organize a webinar series for Kinexus. And one of the things on that checklist is to go and confirm that the automated follow-up email that goes out to people has the correct link for here's where you can click to get the slides and get the recording. And um, one of the, for one of those webinars, I did not go and confirm and double check. And then that next day I start getting the emails. Um, you said you were gonna send out a link. I don't see a link in the email. And that was a completely preventable mistake. It was completely my fault. I can't think of any extenuating circumstances or time pressure where I could point to and, and think of why I made the mistake other than I didn't follow my process. And it's humbling to admit making a mistake like that um, in, in my own work, but um, I've learned from it and it, is, uh, it has renewed my discipline about standard work and checklists. Yeah, that, that's awesome. That brings the whole episode together into a summary. That, that's brilliant. Okay. <laughs> well, Mark, thank nobody, you. Nobody's perfect, certainly not me. Yeah. Well, Mark, thank you so much for your time and thank you for all the work you do to create a better future. Really appreciate it. All right. Well, I'm trying. Thank you. Thanks, thanks, for, thanks for doing the podcast today. The key takeaways for me from this episode are collaboratively helping people set goals, leadership behavior, leaders as coaches versus leaders as mentors. I believe that empowerment precedes accountability. People like change and improvement to occur with them, not to them. When a leader collaborates with their teams and team members in planning for the future, they create empowerment and ownership, which then leads to motivation and accountability. This is a much stronger starting point for success than the alternative approach of telling people what they need to achieve and improve. People doing the work, particularly if they are curiously engaging with their external or internal customers for feedback, are in a stronger position to understand what they need to improve to move forward. They know the day-to-day -day frustrations they and their customers face. They know what would make things better for themselves and their customers into the future. In setting these goals and then helping teams and team members achieve these, leadership behaviour plays a large part. A leader is often placed in that position because they are an expert in what the team does. They have succeeded doing the job in the past. Leaders in this position can suffer from what I call expertitis. Their expertise can lead to a mentoring, dictatorial behaviour. Telling team members what to do, how to overcome an issue, rather than helping them explore, think and grow for themselves. This can disempower team members limit their learning and lead to team members bringing every problem to their leader and waiting for their leader's directive before they do anything themselves. This is your traditional command and control approach. Alternatively, a leader, even if they are an expert, can practice a coaching approach. They can use high quality, open probe questions that help teams and team members focus on their goals, understand their current position and challenges and define ways they can improve move forward. This coaching approach empowers team members, creates ownership 
motivation and accountability. The team and team members are more likely to own and strive towards ideas and actions they have defined and committed to than orders and directives from their leaders and peers above. Take a moment to explore your past approaches in relation to planning and ongoing leadership support to help teams and individuals achieve their plan. Thanks again, Mark. What a great episode. Bye for now.